place pig craft hog chow hog chow was the that was the consumable that made us all the money right so like you could speed up your your hog your pig growing with hog chow so craft hog chow feed pig hog chow weigh in pig and get rewards play game with tendable pig so then the pig becomes an uh, an animal on your farmstead uh, on your homestead and also the other person's homestead in the same state that you got it to right but you could only max it out if you like fed it hog chow you know, basically like, you know, every five minutes. We're Zynga after all. So, um, yeah, we made a lot of money off Hog Chow. Welcome to Creators at Work. I'm Katie Kuffel, one of the makers behind this show, and I'm joined by Brett Novak, Liquid & Grit's founder and CEO. On today's episode, we're hopping back into our Zynga time machine to chat with Nico Vori. Nico was a studio GM at Zynga from 2011 to 2013, where he made a name for himself by reviving the game Frontierville with a golden mechanic, which we discuss in detail. He then transitioned to GM of Zynga Poker, where he worked directly with Brett. After leaving Zynga, Nico became COO of Rocket Games, finding huge success with a new type of slots experience, which helped the company sell for $170 million. He went on to found Drive FM, where he and his team are developing the next generation of interactive entertainment for drivers. We'll be covering a wealth of topics today, like how certain game mechanics lend themselves to vastly different genres and experiences, navigating highly stressful presentations for formidable CEOs, managing a passionate culture, performance-based interviewing, and how the metaverse might become our new reality. I would like to also go back in time on this podcast and start out with when I think I first met you. So I don't know if you're going to remember this, but it was when I was leveling up, getting a little bit more senior in my product career at Singa. And my boss said, you know, you need to go meet a bunch of strong PMs in the org. And one of the people he said, I got it. I had to go meet was you. And as I researched you, I sort of find out there's this guy down on the, I think it was the third floor of the building. We were on the sixth floor in the back office running from Frontierville, which I thought was a dead game. It had been gone for a long time. But apparently the GM of the game, it was you, had figured out how to get the ARP DAO up to something ridiculous. I mean, it was $2 or something, I, I can remember. And it was about a I buck, came buck 50, not quite two. Buck yeah, 50. Close. Okay. I appreciate you keeping me honest. Anyway, so. I came down and met with you and just started talking about what you had done with the game to somewhat re uh, resurrect it in for at least the core audience. I thought we could maybe start with some of the learnings that you had there and that you took into your experience with Rocket Games. So talk about that a little bit and maybe focus on some of the things that you learned there. And then, of course, you were GM of poker and you managed me and my bosses and did an excellent job there. But, you know, just a few things on your experience there and then kind of what you brought it over to Rocket Games, if you brought anything over to Rocket Games. Oh, a ton of stuff. Yeah. Uh, let's Well, let's dive into Frontierville. Frontierville was a dying game. Uh, you know, Zynga had a, I don't know if it was unique, but it was unique to me, approach to to these Ville games, which was launch a game, you'd cross promo the entire Zynga game network into that game. You would basically have peak DAU on day three, give or take. 
And then it would just be basically a question of managing the decline, right? As a GM, your job was essentially to manage the decline. Now, there were exceptions. Obviously, poker was a different kind of game. You know, Words with Friends was a different kind of game. But the Ville games basically were all following the same playbook. And Frontierville was exactly that. And when I took over from the previous GM, you know, my job was essentially to continue to manage the decline, kind of a playbook for for doing that. We had two releases a week. We had one large, one small. There was a quest line. There was a buildable. Like it was just basically do the same thing over and over again. Um, And that was considered best practice. And I listened to your Andrew Ice podcast the other day and uh, I thought it was really interesting. You know, there was a lot of similarities across the studios, you know, whether it was in Texas or in, in San Francisco. And so what we did to turn that game around was essentially to inject a little bit of fresh blood into that game. We recognized that we had this core audience. We called it the golden cohort, which was basically the group of people who had installed the game back in the very early days, first kind of six months of the game's existence. And there had been very few new players um, since then. And so we were basically just providing content for this, this core audience. But they hadn't really seen anything fresh because we were just doing the same thing over and over again. One buildable, one quest line, one buildable, one quest line every single week. And so there was a game called Draw Something that had been acquired. And uh, I'd been inspired by the origin story. He's a really interesting guy, actually. He was like Teach for America head, huge nonprofit. And oh, wow. I'm blanking yeah, on this his guy name, is though. super interesting. We got to get him OMG, on the podcast. OMG, yeah, he was the founder of OMG Pop out of New OMG York. OMG Pop, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Zynga acquired it for $180 million right on the day that they hit their peak DAU as well and then started to decline from there. Dan Porter, Dan Porter, there you Dan go. Dan Porter, I mean, nice. I can't believe I was blanking on his name. Um, and he had been telling the, the origin story of uh, Draw Something and he had basically described it as he was in the Central Park in New York with his two kids, two girls, and the girls were throwing a ball back and forth. They were playing catch. And, you know, they would go one, two, three, four. Oh, they dropped it. Then they start again. One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, and they dropped it. And Dan Porter, as so the legend goes, asked his kids, like, what are they doing? And she said, oh, we're keeping the streak alive. And I remember those words very clearly because like I was super inspired by them. I was like, oh my goodness me, this is a collaborative gameplay mechanic as opposed to a competitive gameplay or solo gameplay mechanic. So basically you needed two people to keep the streak alive. Otherwise, you know, the game dies, right? And so uh, that's basically what Draw Something was. You had this mechanic where you would draw something and then the other person would guess and then if you got it right then the that person would draw something and then the other person would guess and your score was essentially how long your streak was of guessing back and forth it was just really fresh and really interesting in, in games at that time again i was inspired by this brought it back to the studio and we basically came up with a new mechanic a new feature which was still a buildable it was the prized pig feature where you and one other person uh, one other person only one other person adopted a pig and you basically had to feed the pig collaboratively back and forth so that the pig would grow to its maximum size and this is going to sound like a ridiculous story to your audience (laughs) but it's so this is actually kind of fundamental to my career at zynga like so literally a prized pig made my career at zynga so normally zynga buildables would essentially be like you'd have to go and spam your friends on facebook for as many parts as possible you know uh, and then however many friends clicked on it would be the number of parts you got this kind of flipped it on its head where you didn't go to a lot of people you went to just one person but that person had to be super reliable so that you could actually get the maximum size pig and And lo and behold, this one feature literally blew up our game's DAU and revenue, even though it was not super viral, like the the traditional Zynga way, because it wasn't going to as many of your friends as possible. It was going to this one person. But it increased engagement absolutely massively through the roof because you had to keep logging in to your farmstead to feed this pig after your friend had fed it. And you couldn't be the bad friend who then dropped the ball, so to speak. And, you know, we'd gone from, you know, again, 
peak DAU on day three of Frontierville and managing the decline every single quarter, just a little bit worse. All your job was just to make sure it wasn't too bad. Um, we turned it around and DAU grew for three consecutive quarters as a result of this one feature. And this feature, this prized pig mechanic, as it's now known, became a so-called golden mechanic. You remember those? I'm sure Brett, mm-hmm. Mark Pinkus yep. loved the golden mechanic, which is basically <laughs> the notion was it was a mechanic that could be ported over to other games. Uh, and it was evergreen in a sense that it truly could drive results. Um, and then Castleville took it, and they had a feature that was based off this mechanic. Farmville took it. They had a feature that was also the prize pig. Um, Cityville. And basically, it, just, it spread across the vills like wildfire and drove results in each and every one of these games. So I know that's a long-winded story, and you maybe didn't want to start here, but that is truly the key to my career at Zynga, and it has informed my kind of game career to this day. Not necessarily the exact same mechanic, but just the notion that there are certain mechanics that lend themselves to translation from one place to another. In this case, it was a drawing game from a mobile app into a you know desktop web game in, in a totally different kind of you know quest-based Ville style um, invest and express experience. That's where kind of things went from there at Zynga for me. Um, and that is part of the reason, probably the main reason why I was then offered the GM of uh, Zynga Poker role. Two things. The first is that I feel like Zynga was excellent at sharing information. And I can remember when we bought the OMG Pop team, the founder came and speaking to everybody. And that was very much a part of the culture where I think it was partly Pincus, where he'd have people share their stories. When we bought the Words with Friends guys, they did the same thing. I remember that lecture as well. We used to have people coming in all the time. The founder of QuickBooks came into it, came in at one time. I mean, all these different lectures and things like that were going on. It was kind of interesting. And it's cool to see that you were inspired by one of these talks and then brought that into the the game development process. The other thing I remember from that conversation that we had was that you also had a pretty epic live ops calendar, if I remember correctly, because I can remember you pointing to the calendar board and showing me it. And I was a fortunate PM to be on Zynga Poker where we didn't have to worry about live ops events at all. And we were protected from that type of product management. And was that also part of it? Or do you think that was just kind of the Zynga playbook? Uh, yeah, I mean, the live ops piece was huge, right? Again, uh, Frontierville had learned the hard way, and I think all the Ville games had learned the hard way that, you know, it's it's content. It's all about content. Content cadence, right, is what we called mm-hmm. it. And if you didn't have content for your players, they would just churn out because they were voracious for this content. And that's definitely a learning that we got there. Poker, of course, was a slightly different game. There's content cadence there too, but it was, you know, it was less pronounced because the core game of poker, of course, is what you're there for. And there's only so many ways you can slice and dice poker, although I'm <laughs> sure we could point to probably 20 yeah. ways that we slice and dice poker. But but yeah, the, the live ops calendar was essentially us looking forward almost an entire quarter, if I remember correctly, but certainly at least like eight weeks. And we would know exactly what we were going to do on exactly what days to ensure that we didn't churn out our players. Uh, and so that's what I was talking about. You know, we'd have two features a week. Tuesdays was the large, and then the players would kind of churn through that throughout the week and build it and build it and build it. That was the buildable. And then Thursdays would be a quest-based, a smaller feature, which didn't have a buildable, but that kind of kept you tied it over the weekend until the next big feature the following Tuesday. So yeah, it was down to a science, essentially. And again, it was best practice until it wasn't, right? You know, we, we were doing the same thing over and over again, and it was working to a degree But it took a little bit of something different to kind of reinvigorate that audience, at least for three quarters. And then the decline started to happen again. So then you transition over to Zynga Poker, and that's where you started 
we started working together directly and you were the general manager there. And there's one thing I do want to touch on because I feel like this was a superpower of yours was managing presentations with Mark Pincus. So I was in charge of building the PowerPoint decks for all of the GMs from my internship. I mean, that was my big project on my internship three-month project was this epic 50-slide quarterly something review, right? That the GMs would then go in and present to to Pincus. And Pincus, Katie, if you're, you're not familiar with Pincus, is notoriously a tough CEO. And I also helped Nico build his, but he better than anyone mastered the presentation where I'm not even going to say what you did because I kind of want to hear your methodology, but I felt like you did the best that I ever saw in terms of managing those meetings. Is that something fair to say? There's techniques that you can share with managing upwards in terms of presenting? Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm not sure I remember it quite that way. I was as petrified of presenting to Mark Pincus as, as just about anybody else, I'm sure. You know, he is notoriously a tough CEO, makes him a super CEO. I mean, he built a you know multi-billion dollar company out of scratch and that wasn't his first go around. But uh, by the time that I was doing the presentations to him on poker, I'd already been doing them on Frontierville. And of course, I had been witnessing them from the, you know, the viewership position previously because, you know, I'd been, you know, lead product manager on, on Frontier. So I'd been watching Bilal and John Oswald present. And I had learned what works and what doesn't. So there's not really any secret to this. You know, I had seen where GMs presenting or VPs presenting crashed and burned if they weren't prepared, right? You just had to be prepared that Mark Pincus was going to ask you a question and then he was going to go a layer deeper and then he was going to go a layer deeper until he came up with something that you hadn't thought of. Uh, you know, he'd be like, hey, why is your, you know, DAU down? That would be a very obvious example. Then then you'd say, you, of course, would have prepared for that. And you'd say, well, it's because we've we had an issue, it, you know, broke the app, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he'd be like, OK, well, you know, what happened to your funnel? You know, he'd go a layer deeper and then you go a layer deeper and he'd go a layer deeper, like peeling an onion. And I had seen that so many times. And that, that was basically what he did. I don't know if he did it consciously, but he was essentially trying to trip you up, trying to figure out whether you knew what you were talking about or whether you're just doing the, you know, the bullshitting stuff that a lot of VPs and GMs do do, you know, they just kind of gloss over the, the top level facts. And so I just kind of made it my mission in life when I was presenting to Pincus to know where the areas where he was likely to ask something were going to be and almost like pause on those and kind of give him a chance to go for it. And then just know that I had prepared like five layers deep. Now, if you went six layers deep, you're shit out of luck. But, you know, five layers deep, you know, you're probably okay. And so that's really what it boils down to. Part of it's just fundamentals, like know your own business, you know, just make sure you're not just glossing over presenting the good stuff and ignoring the bad. Um, but part of it was also knowing his style and knowing that he wanted to go five layers deep and just be prepared to go five layers deep. I also remember that you had very simple in a good way slides. And you would go pretty quick, not quickly through them, but they would be like a graph and a five word sentence header. It would be like DAU is up 2% graph. Next slide. And I did learn this from you where after working with you, I would start thinking, okay, there's a dip right here. And low would be like, well, explain it, you know, put in some type of bubble and explain it. And, and I remember learning from you thinking, no, don't, don't explain it because he's going to bite on that. And then we'll have super, you know, we'll prepare tons and tons of notes on that because if we put the bubble there, he's not going to ask any questions. He's going to wait till the slide that you don't have the bubble to come after you on something. And it was sort of, like you said, it was, it was almost like a trap you put in the presentation to have a bite on it. Yeah. I mean, you know, a part of it is just keep it simple. Preparing slides. You were excellent preparing slides. You know, some people aren't, they try to cram everything onto a slide and then inevitably 
if there's like five things on a slide, you know, Mark Pincus is going to pick the one thing that you haven't prepared to talk about, right? So keep it simple, you know, keep it as high level as, as possible, but then be prepared for the inevitable question. If there is a dip, just know he's going to ask about that dip and then just be prepared for it. So yeah, I don't think there's any rocket science to it. It's just, you know, uh, know your business, keep things simple, and then be prepared for the inevitable questions. To his credit, he rarely would go on a crazy tangent. Sometimes he did. I, I think I remember there was one poker roadmap meeting. It probably wasn't the annual review, probably wasn't even the quarterly review, but it was kind of a more regular review. And I think we were setting OKRs. And I think one of the things he wanted was that he wanted like uh, all notifications to be social. Do you remember this? And it was kind of like, so don't send any generic notifications from the app. Every notification had to be from like a friend. And I, I remember thinking at the time, I think this probably is a tangent and this probably isn't relevant, but okay, let's humor him. But generally speaking, Mark Pinkus was very good at identifying the real issues. And so it was legit to ask about these things. And it was, you know, legit for him to expect that the studio leadership would be prepared to talk about the things that actually matter to the business. All right. Well, and then the last Zynga question I have, because I know Katie's itching for me to bring up the story that I referenced in the last podcast, which we might have to edit out depending on how it plays (laughs) out. But I have a memory of being in a product meeting with you and talking about a bold beat that I was going to work on. I was an intense dude in product and a lot of people were, but I could get pretty heated. And we went back and forth on what we were planning on doing with, I think it was the leaderboard. And I got pretty intense with you. We went back and forth. And later on, I believe you told me that you thought I was me or someone else that I was going to jump over the table and punch you. Is this a memory that you have and share? And if not, just talk about managing that type of culture and those type of people, because I can also remember another story where I had just been promoted to lead product manager and we had a one-on-one and we were walking outside of Zynga and it was only a month or so after I'd just been promoted. And I was asking you, when am I going to be promoted to director? (laughs) And you said, I just promoted you to lead and you're asking me to be promoted director. So one, do you remember this meeting that I'm talking about? And two, if you do, uh, what, what are your thoughts on managing that type of people and that type of environment? Yeah, I don't remember that specific instance, but I remember that there were many instances like that, and not just with you. It was, it was a culture thing. Product managers at Zynga, I know Andrew mentioned this as well, and pretty sure everybody at Zynga will tell you this, but certainly in those early days, uh, product managers at Zynga were basically, they ruled the roost. The kinds of product managers that were hired were exactly these kind of fairly aggressive hype A personalities. You know, we'd have Goldman Sachs, ex-Goldman Sachs investment bankers. You know, we'd have Harvard MBAs. We'd have people who are very used to getting their way and and pushing, pushing pretty hard. And Mark Pincus encouraged that, you know, he wanted people to push hard. He, I think in many ways, his style was to kind of weed out weakness. You know, he was not a big fan of weakness and weakness in his mind was breaking down in front of a meeting and breaking down under tough interrogation, if you will. And so every single product manager, because that was the tone from the top, knew that that was expected and rewarded. Uh, You talked with Andrew Ice about the the bonus structure and the fact that you could get like huge equity grants every quarter, huge bonuses every quarter. And so, and you knew how to, like what drove that, right? So it's kind of like that Pavlovian effect where you show what gets rewarded, you show what, you know, gets the cheese, the mouse, the cheese. And and so PMs knew that that kind of hardcore culture was going to be rewarded. Now, I'm not saying it's necessarily a good thing, (laughs) um, but that was the culture uh, at Zynga in, in those days. So I have pretty thick skin. That's why I probably don't remember this particular meeting. Like I'm sure other people wanted to punch me in the face at times as well. And I know I certainly wanted to punch people in the face at times too. And it was kind of trial by combat. 
And, you know, after you had had these tough meetings, I think a lot of the time people just, you know, they would kind of pat each other on the shoulder and, you know, go for a drink after work. Uh, you know, a lot of lifelong friendships came out of, out of Zynga. I mean, you know, you and I, Brett, have stayed in touch all these years. I would agree. I felt like those contentious moments actually ended up making my relationship with those people stronger. I mean, I can definitely remember after those type of interactions with my boss, Eddie, my direct boss, and then you and, and going out and having a lunch or a drink and laughing about it. And in many ways, kind of making our relationship stronger and that we could have that type of moment and then go have lunch and then move on and realize, wow, we're, our relationship is strong enough that we can do that. We can express our opinions. We can get pretty emotional about stuff and then we can move on. So, well, that's awesome. And I'm glad that you don't remember it as vividly as I do. It just blurs in with the, all the other meetings that people want to punch you in the face. Now, if I can add one thing, I, I, you know, I think a lot of this was down to the fact that we really cared a lot right? Like there was an intensity of caring about our trade, about our craft, about product management. We, I think we all recognized that we were kind of, I mean, this sounds super grandiose because we were making games, but we were kind of at the, at the forefront of history, if you will, um, because this was the first time that this level of analytics and this level of data gathering and this level of uh, live ops were being applied to games. I personally feel myself remembering like, wow, this is really cool. Like we are pioneering a style of game development, a discipline, i.e. product management for games that has not been done before. There was no playbook for it. We were writing the playbook. And that was really exciting to me. And that was really motivating to me because there wasn't a playbook for what we were you know, developing together. A lot of heated moments occurred because there wasn't an easy thing to point to, to say like, that's right, or that's right. It was just strong opinions who were clashing over something that they felt really passionate about and wanted to get right because this was, you know, kind of a moment in history, if you will. So again, it sounds a little grandiose because we were making games at the end of the day, but it really formed the foundation, I think, for a lot of so-called best practice that is now applied and taken for granted around the world in, in game studios. I would agree with that. And also defining what the product management role really is in terms of the technology element of product management. I mean, product management's been around a long time, but in terms of, like you said, high data, high velocity technology, I feel like Zynga was really the training ground for establishing what that role and that position is today. I mean, it's changed a little bit, but that was somewhat a new creation being a product manager in that kind of environment and with those type of tools. So I, I completely agree. I think it was a really amazing time. And I, I love my time at Zynga. And we were certainly surrounded by, like you said, passionate people, but also super, super talented people. I mean, the talent pool at Zynga was incredible. Everybody was smart. Everyone was passionate. Everyone was hardworking. Everyone was getting after it. I know that's pretty trite to say, but I have been at a, enough other companies to know that it was special at Zynga and it not so at some other places. I do want to transition, if it's all right with you, to your experience at Rocket Games. You know, you did a few things before you went to Rocket Games, but most of our listeners are in the gaming space. And I think that's a pretty interesting transition because I remember talking to you about this where you went from very much focused on product and then you decided to transition over to a more people-oriented role, the COO of Rocket Games. I'd love to start there with some of your thought process for transitioning over to this other role and the challenges you wanted to take, and then what you did jumping in there and helping that become 
one of the biggest successes in the last 10 years in mobile gaming. Rocket Games was an amazing experience. Um, it was founded by Bill Gelpie and Stephen John, who were um, colleagues of mine on Frontierville. And then I actually brought Bill Gelpie over to Zynga Poker to be director of product later on, right, right towards the end of my tenure at Zynga. And uh, Bill and Stephen are college buddies. I think they met each other playing World of War Warcraft and, you know, both ended up at Zynga and um, had great careers there and then decided that they wanted to kind of do something from the ground up themselves. Bill had asked me actually to join as a, as a founder when they were founding the company before they'd even made a product. And I kind of looked at him and said, mm, no, I, <laughs> uh, good luck. But, you know, I had my, I think, second kid on the way um, and it was just not quite the right time. But I, I joined him as an advisor to meet with him once a week, once every couple of weeks, just to have a kind of a chat about what their challenges were and give feedback on the product, uh, which at the time was a uh, video slots mobile app. They grew over about a year to, I think, five or six people by that stage, bootstrapping the company, didn't raise any outside funding, and were generating a little bit of revenue from advertising mostly, not so much in-app purchase revenue. And the time was right at that point to kind of jump on board. It felt like they were onto something. It felt like it wasn't a completely crazy risk on my part, you know, to forego any income. And there was a clear path, you know, and there was a clear problem to be solved. Bill is, a, if you know Bill, he's a very analytically minded product manager, and he really wanted to focus on balancing slot machines and, you know, focusing on the product side of things. Steven, of course, CTO on the engineering side. And there was definitely a need for somebody to to kind of run the operations of the company, do the hiring, develop a process for interviews, for culture. You know, Bill and Steven had, had a culture in mind, but it wasn't really formalized and there wasn't really a, a structure. And so it felt like a really interesting opportunity to work on a set of problems that most studios have anyway, like a GM's role is not just to be on the product side, is also to make sure that people feel valued and that, you know, PM doesn't run, you know, rule the roost and that there is respect for design and art and engineering and basically balancing the different parts. Um, a game studio is essentially a company. Zynga Poker was a, I mean, I think at the time that we were there, right, it was like a $250 million a year business. I think it's even bigger now because mobile has grown so so rapidly. But, you know, that's a, that's a big business. There's a lot of kind of pieces to, to balance. And so that's, that was the opportunity I saw at Rocket, uh, was to join up with, you know, some old colleagues who I know were extremely talented, who had already built something, but I felt like I could really bring something to it that would allow us to blow it up and supersize it, especially in the operational and, and culture side. But then over time also, you know, having some influence on, on product and product strategy. Yeah, I, I was pretty familiar with the company as well, because I know Bill pretty well and I was meeting with him and I actually interviewed with the company, maybe probably after you joined. It was really impressive that they were bootstrapping it and figuring out how to make money. And they were optimizing a lot on ASO in the beginning on Android. And so when you joined, what were some of the things, again, that you took from your learnings at Zynga? I know they had some cultural stuff. Bill and I have talked about this, where you had all new employees read three books, one of which I have utilized a ton in my company. What were some of the things that were there and some of the things that you ended up implementing to help the company succeed as much as it did? Yeah, I mean, I think the book you're referring to is probably uh, Certain to Win. Um, we also had uh, Reinertsen's uh, Managing the Design Factory. And I actually forget what the third one was now. But the, probably the most it important... A, it was a scrum book. It was a scrum book. Yes, that was my, yeah. my least favorite of the three. There was mine <laughs> um, as well. I didn't read that one. <laughs> but it is important to note that that is something that, you know, we asked every employee to do the very first day that they would join, you know, those three books would be on their desk, and we would expect folks to read it. And we had a book club, and we would talk about it. But perhaps the most important piece out of all of those books um, is this notion of the OODA loop, uh, observe, orient, decide, act. And what's 
important about the OODA loop is that you want to keep that as tight as possible so that you have as much information uh, as quickly as you can from real people, real customers, not just opinions, you know, from you and your team or focus groups or anything like that, but real data from real people so that you can make the best possible decisions based on the best available information and the data. And that is something we very much believed in and, and kind of built even more processes around um, over the over the years at Rocket. You know, part of that was inside the same app. You know, and you can do that. We would have these slot machine games that we would build and we would kind of optimize things inside the app. You mentioned ASO, App Store Optimization. We got really good at that. And again, you could do that on a fairly tight loop, and especially on Android, because it doesn't have the submission times that you do on iOS. Certainly in those days, iOS would take a couple of weeks sometimes, whereas on, on Android, you could get data very, very quickly. So that's that's absolutely something that we very much built out into a almost like a belief system. <laughs> you know, we wanted to move quickly. We wanted to make decisions as, as efficiently as we possibly could. And we wanted to try to eliminate, this is what I think. You know, there's a lot of meetings at a lot of companies where it's like, this is what I think. And it's usually the most senior person who ends up having the final say. And we really, really didn't want that to be the case. Uh, and that is absolutely something that I have maintained from my perspective. I try to remain humble. I do not want to try and be like, I know best because I don't. Like typically you don't. A lot of the times it's the people who are closest to the product, closest to the customer who have the most information, but are perhaps not brave enough or you know don't feel like they have the agency to stand up and speak up. And so OODA Loop kept that as tight as we possibly could, both within individual apps, but then also we built a big portfolio of slot schemes where we were trying to make it a little bit better than the previous one on the next go around, right? So I think by the time we launched our hit game, which we'll get to in a second, we had probably launched 36 or 37 apps. Um, so we had a big portfolio of slots games that all had different themes and different kinds of features. And as we were building these features, we would make them into systems, which means that we could very easily take that system from a previous app and put it into a new one. And we would discard the things that didn't work and we would use the things that did work, right? And that's really what the OODA loop was all about. It was about keeping it as tight as possible, both at the micro level, i.e. individual app, and then at the macro level as you're building out your portfolio of products. That's probably the most important thing that, that we did. And that's the thing that we really tried to kind of insert still in all of our employees, this ability to move quickly and to gather data and make decisions based on the best possible information. I'd say the other big thing that certainly that I did there was really formalize the interview process. It was very informal. I think the first few hires were just, you know, friends, you know, ex-colleagues, like, and, and that's good. That's like where you want to start. You have that core, that's your DNA. Um, but then beyond that, you want to make sure that you're hiring, you know, as well as you can. And so um, I'm happy to go into more detail, but basically I spent a good amount of time just kind of researching uh, what's known as performance-based interviewing, PBI. And essentially uh, PBI, I, I don't know if you use the same methodologies, Brett, um, with Liquid and Grit, but PBI is basically this uh, methodology pioneered by a guy called Lou Adler. Google leans heavily on PBI techniques. And the idea is that your past performance in a similar situation, even if it's completely unrelated to the area you're in, is likely to be a good guide for how you would address a situation in the future. And the goal there is to basically peel the layers of the onion again, a bit like Mark Pincus would do in meetings, but you would you would continue to ask questions, probing going a layer deep, deeper each time um, based on an actual experience that somebody had. So like typically a PBI question would be, tell me about a time when you had to manage a difficult employee. Tell me about a time when you had to manage upwards. You know, tell me about a time when you had to resolve a uh, disagreement among team members. And you never accept just the first layer. You always go five layers deep to see where the rote response ends and the real experience, the real kind of rawness of what they actually ended up doing exposes itself. And that's typically where you're like, okay, this is how this person would likely 
respond to a situation where we have a disagreement. And so um, I found it to be super helpful in all of the interviews that we've done, both at Rocket and then now at Drive FM. Every single time we didn't listen to the results of the PBI process and we overruled it, we eventually realized that we were wrong and that wasn't it wasn't a good fit. So I, I'm not going to say it's 100% success rate, but it's like pretty predictive of the issues that you are likely to encounter with with employees as you as you use this uh, PBI process. This is pretty interesting and, and valuable for problem that I'm trying to solve, which is hiring less tactically specific positions, right? Meaning it's a little easier to say, I need someone to help me on the podcast versus I need someone to answer general strategic questions or to help manage the teams and things like that. So when you do the interview, I'm assuming a a few people interview this person, do you ask the same questions about that same thing? Or do they all just go in with this general tool set of using the, the framework and then peeling the onion? So we deliberately don't ask the same questions. Uh, We have a pool of questions. We actually ask on on certain topics, right? So we have, it started out as A through F, which was what I developed, the methodology developed at Rocket Games. And then I've since added G and H, uh, a drive FM for for specific types of hires. So basically you're, you're probing on various areas of competence, right? So A is for agility, how well somebody's able to kind of deal with a situation, fast moving situation, not just be in their wheelhouse, but actually be adaptive. B is for brains, which is basically, you know, how smart are you? Are you knowledgeable about what you're supposed to be knowledgeable about? Uh, C is communication. Goes without saying, can you communicate? D is drive. Uh, E is empathy, uh, especially across different disciplines. And then F is fit. And that's going to be unique to your particular company or whatever culture you're trying to build out. We've since added G and H. G is for gravitas. It's for more senior hires. So if you need somebody who's going to be like your VP of sales or uh, a, you know, almost co-founder level type individual who might be going in front of investors and pitching, like, do they have the wherewithal to stand in front of people and have that gravitas? And then H is just a simple hire. Yes or no. We now go A through H. I'm going to see if I can get all the way to Z at some point, maybe in my next company. But all joking aside, it is an incredibly powerful technique because every single person who does the interviews uh, is asking about those topic areas, but they're using different questions. And so we'll have a pool of questions that all probe at different things. Sometimes we'll probe on one thing, you know, just on agility. Sometimes I'll actually touch on two or three. Um, and so you're able to kind of get more out of that interviewee. And then at the end, once you've asked all your questions, the team that's been interviewing, typically it's at least four, uh, sometimes more, depending on the seniority of the hire, we get together, we individually, bef- without telling anybody, rank everybody on one through five on each of those A through F or A through H now. You know, five is exceptional, never worked with anybody like this before. Like this is like truly the top 1%. And one is like, my God, this is the worst ever. Threes and fours is good. And certainly four would be very sufficient for a higher five. Like if you get fives, you're like, wow, this this is exceptional. And then you get together and uh, across, you do a matrix on a, on a whiteboard. And then everybody has kind of individually come up with their scores. You put them all up on the board and then you discuss. And what you typically don't discuss is if there's a lot of agreement, like everybody agrees that this person was a four in agility, threes and fours with one five, you're probably like, you're only going to talk about the outliers and you say, oh, Brett, very interesting that you thought Katie was a five on communication. Um, Why do you think that? I thought she was only a, you know, a three. She was good, but she was, you know, I thought average. Why do you think she stands out among the rest of the candidates? And then you would justify your position. You would say, okay, I asked her this. We talked about this. The example she gave me was here. I went two or three layers deep. It was interesting that she would say 
these things, thought it was a very innovative approach, and that's why I gave her a five. And so you basically justify your score, and then everybody talks about the outliers, not so much where you agree. Because if you agree, you're probably like, yeah, it's more interesting where there's disagreement. And at the end, you then kind of talk about it. Sometimes it's very obvious that it's going to be a no hire. Other times it's less so. But yeah, there's a healthy debate. And at the end of it, you've got yourself a decision on hire, no hire. And you move forward with references. And for the decision of yes, no, is there an average number or is and is that made by you or someone outside of that discussion? How is that done? It's not hard and fast. There's no average score that's required. Uh, sometimes it's going to depend on the, the role. Like, for example, if you're hiring the very first head of growth and there's nobody else who's working on growth at your company, it's more important to get 100% consensus and very high scores because you really can't get it wrong. You know, this person's going to be responsible for a significant percentage of your budget, you know, of the capital that you've raised or the revenue that you're generating. And, and so there's less room for error. Um, at the same time, or on the flip side of that, you've got, if, if it's your sixth or 10th software engineer, and you've already got nine who are very good, and you're hiring one more, it's perhaps less important to have 100% consensus. And it's less important, perhaps to have like fours and fives, threes and fours will probably be sufficient. So I would say there's no hard and fast rule there. It's kind of role specific and um, seniority specific as well. So if we could, I would like to touch on the legendary story of Viva, because that was obviously super important to the company's success. And I know you had a serious role in creating that game. Yeah, Viva Las Vegas. Uh, Viva Las Vegas uh, was the game that was our breakout game, or I think probably our 37th title. The story of Viva is actually very interesting, and it's tied in many ways to the story of OMG Pop and Draw Something. It is a very similar, I guess, history or there's there's clear parallels there for how it happened. So slots, mobile slots, circa 2014, 2015, were basically all video slots. Video slots are, you know, the games that have the electronic reels, which means you can have lots and lots of different pay lines. They're typically less volatile, not like you get small wins a lot of the time because you have so many combinations that are possible thanks to the fact that it's a digital reel. Um, you have all the bells and whistles, lots of animations. Um, those are the games that you walk around in Vegas and you see lots of flashing lights and big screens. And it's a video slots game. And almost all, in fact, all games um, at that at that time, including our SKUs, were all video slots games. Uh, they do have a bigger audience. They are a little more international, i.e. they exist all over the world, not just in the United States. But there was a category of slots um, that exists in the real world that had not yet made its way onto mobile. And that is classic slots, uh, which are these mechanical, like one-armed bandits, like these old school slots games where there's a physical reel. And so you're limited as to how many pay lines you can have. And that means that they're way more volatile. They have huge payouts, but you can easily spend 50 times in a row and get no wins, right? And that's not a video slots game. Video slots game is much more of like a gentle, getting lots of dopamine hits all the time. Time, but they're much smaller, right? Whereas with uh, classic uh, mechanical three-reel payline slots, single payline slots, you're, you're getting much more volatile experiences, but losing a lot more often. And what is interesting that is that nobody had thought to bring these classic style slots games to mobile. Uh, they, everybody was kind of copying each other and copying the video slots trends um, and bringing a lot of those machines to, to market. And I happened to be at a um, conference uh, where I spoke to an industry dude, very smart guy. I bought him a couple of beers and I asked him like, hey, you know, we've been making these video slots games. We've been having some success, but we're not really breaking through. Like, is there anything you've seen that's really interesting that is a trend that we should perhaps look at or, you know, something that others aren't seeing? 
And, you know, having bought him a couple of beers, he was like, yeah, actually, there was a really interesting game called Old Vegas Slots on Facebook Canvas. It wasn't on mobile yet. They were on Facebook Canvas. And that game... Uh, was essentially going after this classic style slots game. And he was like, they have crazy high ARPUs, you know, 50, 60 cents, whereas our highest was at that point, it was like maybe 10 cents. Um, and so not high enough to to do marketing against with not enough, you know, LTV to justify actual budget against it. And we were like, wow, that is interesting. And it was a pretty janky game. Like it wasn't, you know, it was kind of like buggy and it didn't work much of the time. And it was on Facebook Canvas, but that 50, 60 ARP, like, wow. So took that information back to the team and kind of true to form, we basically thought, okay, fine, let's make a classic style slots game. Let's make it really well. By that stage, we've made 36 apps. So we knew how to make apps quickly. We had the OODA loops down. Um, and I think it was like in a matter of four or five weeks, we had our first version of old Vegas slots up with, I think, nine machines, kind of all reminiscent of kind of old Vegas, you know, like the glamour, the, you know, the sound effects, everything was very different to video slots. And within like the first day, it was very obvious that we had a hit on our hands. And it was, I mean, it still gives me chills to this day. Like I remember just looking at the the numbers and I was like, oh my God, like this is, this is insane. Like this is like five, six, seven times better than anything we've ever seen before in our portfolio. Suddenly it was like, okay, I'm going to do some marketing against this, right? So that was part of my role as well as a COO was to you know manage the budget and and manage the marketing spend. And so I just started spending on Facebook. I spent $500 and we returned the $500 in a matter of hours, right? So like our... Payback period was hours, not days or months or you know years. In some cases, people are spending smaller, but I was like, okay, fine. Yeah. Maybe that's just like, because we were targeting old Vegas slots players on Facebook when you could still do that. Um, and right. so it was very obvious we had a high affinity audience there. Then popped in a bit more budget. Next thing you know, spending $10,000, returning that in a week, you know, spending $50,000, returning that, you know, within the month. And next thing you know, you know, we're spending two and a half million dollars a month on marketing profitably uh, and growing at a pace that was just like insane. And so, yeah, that that's the story of Vegas Las Vegas, a very long story. But yeah, what was exciting about, about that experience was that it really brought home all of the lessons from Zynga. You know, it brought home a lot of the lessons that we had seen in, you know, in, in the rest of the market, right? So we weren't being into like that, the part of the problem that the Zynga had, I think, especially towards the end of, of my tenure there, your tenure there is we were really like navel gazing, you know, like it was almost impossible to make decisions without having a comp, right? I think you talked about that with Andrew Rice. Like it was so paralyzing and it was just very difficult to do anything. Even, even if there was a comp in the market, unless we had done it ourselves internally, like there was just no way to justify doing anything. And so that was kind of a, a negative learning, if you will, from Zynga that we utilized on Rocket Games with Viva, where everybody was navel gazing each other. They were like, oh, look, they've got that feature on their video slots game. Let's go copy that. Like mobile gaming is all about that. Like you're like, oh, look, they've got this thing. Like, let's put that in there. But then it, it takes something a little bit fresh, you know, a little bit like with Frontierville, where we did the, you know, MG pop, draw something, keep the streak alive concept and put that into a different genre of game for it to work. Same thing here. You know, we took a genre of game that exists in the real world, classic style slots and brought it to mobile and lo and behold, it worked. Right. I'm sure there are limited numbers of those things possible, but a lot of the time, like that's the obvious thing. Like I, I still call it my slap myself on the forehead moment when I realized like, uh, like about a third of the North American casino market is the actual physical uh, slot machine market is classic style slots games. Like, of course it's going to work on mobile. But it, it, it just took like one of those moments and a couple of beers in San Diego at a conference um, to to kind of bring that to light. You know, next thing you know, the rest is history. 
Unless there's other stuff you want to touch on at Rocket Games, I would like to transition. Now that you're working or you started Drive Time, what type of things have you brought from your experiences in in these two instances and beyond that you think are if you if you're open to sharing, obviously that you brought to your new venture, which is super exciting and potentially massive market, and that could be the next frontier for games. Yeah, Drive FM or formerly known as Drive Time, um, it basically going after what I call the final frontier uh, for gaming, which is uh, other than sleep, the only time that humans can't play games is in the car. That's the only time that they can't do anything interactive because you know you got to have your hands on the wheel and your eyes on the road. The insight we think we have is that you know humans are hardwired for gaming. Humans are hardwired for interactivity, doing things, not just you know passively consuming things. And we believe that there's a big opportunity um, in the car, uh, especially in North America. There are 110 million daily commuters, maybe less so now during the pandemic, but they'll be coming back end of May once the uh, vaccines are all rolled out. But yeah, 110 million daily commuters in America who spend on average about an hour in their cars with nothing to do. So I like to think that there's, you know, pattern recognition going on here. You know, Zynga saw that games could work on a, you know, a social platform like Facebook, you know, Facebook Canvas, you know, mobile, when mobile devices first rolled out and the app store rolled out, it wasn't obvious that you would be playing games on them. Um, And yet here we are, you know, games are just this absolutely massive industry on mobile devices. Now we've got voice assistants. There's no reason in my mind why this new technology, this new kind of voice platform wouldn't give birth to big um, gaming opportunities as well. Obviously, it's already happening in the home on the, the hardware devices. Uh, we're less interested in that space just because that the home is already saturated with other interactive entertainment. But the car is truly you know, blue ocean territory. There's nothing in the car that competes on the interactive level. You know, you've got obviously podcasts and music and radio and live sports and things like that. But those are all passive. Those are lean back experiences. You know, you're listening to it. Uh, we're trying to create lean forward experiences that are just more engaging, more interactive, more fun. Uh, well, Nico. We always like to ask people where they think the future is headed, what insights they might have, what guesses, where do you think the puck is going for gaming, mobile, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. I heard you ask uh, others this as well. Uh, I'm a huge believer in the coming of the metaverse. It is being touched upon. It is being tickled at by many companies. But I think that there is a, a very big Uh, It's going to be a big undertaking, but I believe that it's coming. I am super excited for that. Uh, I don't know if it's coming in the next year or next five years or 10 years. You know, Magic Leap is trying to do some stuff that failed. Like, But the time is getting close to being right for something like Ready Player One, the metaverse, uh, a massively multiplayer, everybody on the planet gets to participate uh, type experience. We're close, but we're not quite there yet. But that's where I do think the puck is going. I think players want more and more engaging experiences. Players want more and more social experiences. Uh, players want more and more of everything. They want more competitive experiences, more collaborative experiences. Only the metaverse can do that. I cannot describe to you exactly what it's going to look like because I can't. I don't have the imagination myself to quite see what it's going to be. But I know lots of people are working on it, and I do think that um, we're going to have it sooner rather than later. I think it's going to take some collective entity or some individual who isn't going to try to profit from it, just like the internet was created, for it to happen. It it can't be this platform owned by a company type situation because it, that doesn't lend itself to the collective nature that the meta universe needs to have in order for it to succeed. I think it needs to feel like 
they own that part of the meta universe. They're not giving whomever 30% cut and have to deal with that stuff like the internet has been for so long. I, I think I 100% agree with that. I think I actually, I think the, the best analogy for me for how I think this might come to be could very well be wrong. You know, with technology, people are always making predictions and oftentimes they're they're off, way off. But I, I think the best analogy for me is something like, you know, Bitcoin and completely decentralized, uh, completely not-for-profit, air quotes here. Um, obviously, lots of people are profiting off it, but I think that's exactly where it's going to go. Like, I don't think that there's a central entity that's profiting from, you know, the creation of Bitcoin, but I, I do think it might be something like that. Maybe it's Tim Sweeney, like who creates, you know, this kind of incredible set of technologies that anybody can pick up and run with and create their own like little piece of that universe. Those individuals can profit from it, but the original creator or the original creating entity isn't actually profiting from, from the metaverse. I think that is something that is very realistic. Um, I think you might be right there, Brett, that that is the way it comes to be. I'm definitely excited to see where that goes and be a, certainly be a part of it. I think Epic Games could do it because they have done things with their platform to make it so that it's more owned by the people who are launching it. I mean, their their commissions are much smaller than Facebook's and Apple's. So they, I mean, it could be a company that's privately owned that builds something to benefit basically mankind to get <laughs> to, to just drop that at the end here. <laughs> there you but, go. We've got yeah. We've been part but, of history. But, we've been we've been part of history part with Zynga. Of history, with the, yeah. And now now we're now we're just dropping the metaverse here at the end of this this podcast. Metaverse um, mankind, yeah. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and thanks again to our guest Nico for coming onto the podcast. Do you have any questions about the episode or an idea for a future guest? then please shoot Brett an email at brett.novak at liquidandgrit.com. Again, that is B-R-E-T-T dot N-O-W-A-K at liquidandgrit.com. We hope you were inspired by today's episode, and if you were, please consider subscribing to our show or sharing it in all the places that you love to share things. So until next time, here's Brett and Nico to close us out. There's nothing more awesome than like filing a patent and having like frontier jack in in the pop-up that's his name the, the big beard and the pipe and the flower in his in his hat like yeah. that's frontier jack so uh he says hey there if you get a partner you'll be able to feed your pig even faster just ask a friend oh my god this is bringing me so many memories this is so awesome i'm so glad i did this podcast this is like the greatest thing ever